welcome to the sensational debut edition of the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast. I'm your host, Diablo Frank. Wonder Woman is one of my top five favorite superheroes of all time, and she's easily my number one favorite superheroine. She spent a number of years in the number one place as my absolute favorite. And that's quite an accomplishment for a character that's been as consistently poorly written and generally badly handled, treated like a redheaded stepchild by DC, as Wonder Woman. To me, Wonder Woman is what I call one of the primordial superheroes. She's one of those characters that I don't remember being introduced to her. She was always there for as far back as I can remember. I'm sure I saw her on merchandise, but I definitely saw her on the Super Friends cartoon where she was the woman superhero. You know, they had Wendy and they had Jaina and I think Hawkgirl maybe popped up at some point. But really, the one woman was Wonder Woman. So, of course, she immediately stood out on those terms. I was raised in my early life by two women, so I was kind of sensitive to representations of women in the media. Wonder Woman in the cartoon was a badass. She had the lasso. She had the jet plane. She was strong. She was smart. She was fast. She had a great voice actress. So no problems with how she was handled in the Super Friends cartoon. I also saw the original Wonder Woman pilot movie from 1974 with Kathy Lee Crosby. I had issues with that immediately because she looked nothing like Wonder Woman. She was a blonde. She had the wrong costume. My conception of that movie was it was some sort of a bootleg. Like it was one of those situations where they made a movie and it was called Wonder Woman, but it wasn't supposed to actually feature the real Wonder Woman. Like it was a knockoff or there was some kind of a trademark issue. Obviously, I could have articulated that because I didn't understand those concepts as a kid, but that's the way I perceived it back then. I, of course, also watched the Wonder Woman television show that ran from 1975 to 1979. I don't think I caught it in first run, but it was popular in syndication, especially on afternoons on local UHF channels. So I watched that regularly. I loved the animated opening sequences, and I would often tune in just for those. The actual show wasn't the greatest. It was all right, but it was an hour long. It was a drama. So for a kid, that was a lot to ask in terms of attention span. Because it wasn't as colorful or as engaging as the Batman TV show, for instance. I've tried to revisit it as an adult. Without nostalgia, I'm not sure that show should be exposed to people because the episodes I did watch were really bad. But I came from that generation where there just was not a lot of superhero multimedia, especially in live action. So you watched everything you get your hands on, and I was perfectly happy to watch Wonder Woman as a kid at least. I never much cared for Lyle Wagner as Steve Trevor, which probably fed into a long-standing dislike of that character that I've recovered from in recent years. But of course, Linda Carter was beautiful, and she embodied that sweetness and that caring that I associate with Wonder Woman while also having great agency, great power to affect change. While the show may not be the greatest in terms of its aptitude, its heart's in the right place, and the characterization of Wonder Woman is swell. The first Wonder Woman comic I remember ever getting was issue 267, which was published in 1980. I remember I got it in one of those three packs. Uh, Back in the old days, in toy stores and in grocery stores, you could buy three comic books randomly packaged together in poly bags, usually by companies like Whitman, and sometimes they would actually be reprints with a Whitman logo on them. This one didn't have that, though, and in fact, I still have my copy from back in the day. It was written by Gary Conway, drawn by Jose Delbo, and inked by Vinnie Coletta. Vinnie Coletta didn't do Delbo any favors, but I still enjoy the art. It had an Animal Man guest appearance, and I've always had a soft spot for Animal Man, specifically because he was in that Wonder Woman story. 
And I really like this one sequence where there was a downed enemy plane, if I remember correctly. Wonder Woman was rushing in to investigate. The villain tried to shoot her in the face with a gas. She whips out her lasso and starts spinning it and turns it into a fan to blow it away from herself. I like that that was something unique to that character. I didn't see characters ever do something like that. Usually they just were like fall by the wayside. That never made a lot of sense because you've got gas in the air. You can't just run away from something in the air, but you can blow it away with your lasso. I'd occasionally pick up Wonder Woman comics in the 1980s. Usually I wouldn't actually buy them. They'd be loners from friends or trades. I wasn't big into Wonder Woman's adventures in that time. I think that was probably during the period when Don Heck was drawing her. I just never liked that artist. And her adventures by reputation, because I've not read a lot of them, were not the best. When I did read Wonder Woman comics back in the 80s, it was for the Huntress backups. She had some pretty cool stories. She had a great character design. And she had some really wonderful artists, too. I, I love the look of the Huntress strip. But I wasn't a loyal Wonder Woman fan at that point in time. I didn't begin to become a true Wonder Woman fan until the eighth issue of the 1987 series. This was after George Perez had reintroduced the character into the new continuity that came out of the event miniseries Christ on Infinite Earth. So she was treated as a brand new character with brand new stories to tell. The specific story was called Time Passages, and it was a great primer to the character. What it did was explain her new deal. She debuted as a superhero as a part of the Legends crossover, where Darkseid tried to convince the people of Earth to turn against their heroes and then conquer it for himself as the Lord of Apocalypse. But prior to that, Wonder Woman had gone through the tournament and come to Man's World to stop Ares, the god of war, from creating a nuclear holocaust with the United States going up against the USSR. But what was cool about this specific story is it was panels of George Perez art coupled with thick blocks of text. And as a kid, I didn't have a ton of money, so I was always looking for the comic book that would give me the most bang for my buck. This comic that was basically a book, but heavily illustrated and illustrated by somebody as great as George Perez, very enticing to me. And it was a great way of getting into the individual characters in the Wonder Woman lore. Mostly, though, the characters reflecting on Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman herself did not have any of these written passages. You had a report drafted by Etta Candy, Wonder Woman's military liaison who had gone through maneuvers with her and seen how the U.S. military had mistreated her. I think there was one from Steve Trevor. There was one from Julia Capitellis, who was an archaeologist that was helping to integrate Wonder Woman into man's world. I believe there was a diary entry from her daughter, Vanessa Capitellis, that showed how the kids in her school were responding to the appearance of Wonder Woman. It was a wonderful way of getting invested in that character. It would be a hard thing for me to read today, though, because, you know, in our modern era, we're not used to reading comic books that take an hour worth of your time. But as a kid, it was glorious and it was a great way to hook me into the character. I continued to buy the book for a few months after that. The next issue following was the introduction of the new version of the Cheetah, where she was a much more bloodthirsty character and she was a anthropomorphized being. She was part jungle cat, part woman, which was a new status quo for that character. George Perez really showed the brutality and the fear of this new cheetah. So I dug that a lot. And then I managed to pick up a few chapters of the story arc Challenge of the Gods, where Wonder Woman is called back to Paradise Island, the Mascara, and put through her paces for not having appeased the gods. She has to go into the dark underworld underneath her island paradise and fight monsters and deal with all sorts of psychological and physical turmoil. Unfortunately, around the time that was happening, I moved out of state. I no longer had access to the first comic shop that I ever had ready access to. And Wonder Woman did not get good newsstand distribution. So I was basically forced to give up the title. 
And when I did have access to Wonder Woman comics after that, it was in guest appearances in books like Superman comics, action comics. The same time that I was getting into Wonder Woman, or actually a few months afterwards, I got into the John Byrne revamp of Superman through discounted back issues, and I continued to buy that book off the newsstand. It was also my first exposure to the proposed Superman Wonder Woman romance, which I hated as a child and continue to hate to this day. If you continue to listen to this podcast in the future, you'll get to hear me drone on and on about that hate. As far as actual Wonder Woman comics, though, I just didn't buy them. I would occasionally find them at the comic shop or on the newsstand, and I'd flip through them. And by the time I was getting back to it, I don't think Perez was drawing the book anymore. And it was a real bait and switch to go from a George Perez cover to Chris Marin and interior art. Actually, the art on Wonder Woman books for some time after Perez left was not to my taste. For instance, Perez decided to build one of DC's line-wide crossovers around the 50th anniversary of Wonder Woman. He called it War of the Gods. And I remember in interviews, he said that the first thing DC wanted to get rid of in the War of the Gods concept was the heavy involvement of Wonder Woman, which was the whole point of him doing the crossover in the first place. Another problem was that Perez was going to draw the book. I'm sure that was a selling point, but he was only doing very loose pencils. The finishes were being done by Cynthia Martin, who I usually like, but the combination of Perez and Martin was not palatable at all. I don't think that was just me. I don't think very many people have very positive things to say about that. And I believe that Romeo Tangal ended up inking that as well. Tangal is not one of my favorite inkers. I didn't particularly like him on Perez, although he was a better fit there, but inking over Cynthia Cynthia Martin, who herself is working over Perez layouts, it just did not mesh very well at all. Plus, a big selling point was these mini posters that they bound into the book. And by mini posters, basically just pinup pages along the lines of what they had in Marvel fanfare comics back in those days. It was drawn by Chris Sprose with inks by George Perez. It's a shame that those same roles didn't get switched in the main book and have Perez inking Cynthia Martin. That would have probably been a better looking book. But Perez at that time was busy drawing the Infinity Gauntlet crossover, which he only did for the first three issues or so. I think that it's known that Perez has a lot of dislike for Thanos and that he was very unhappy to have been involved with the Infinity Gauntlet book. He did not find the script to his liking. And I think he had a lot of resentment because on one side, he's battling with DC over all the changes they want to make to War of the Gods and taking away as much of the Wonder Woman aspect of it as possible. And then over at Marvel, he's trying to draw all these characters in one slugfest after another. So Perez wasn't happy with his experiences at DC or Marvel. He basically quit them both. That left Wonder Woman in the wilderness as well. He quit writing Wonder Woman so abruptly that the book actually had to go on a brief hiatus but he did select his successor, William Messner Loeb's as writer. And Jill Thompson had already begun to draw the book. But this was early Jill Thompson. I don't think she ever was a really good fit for the character. She's supposed to be working on a graphic novel that might help to change my mind. But I never cared for her on that book. So when I sampled her in the Wonder Woman special that was being used to introduce this new era of Wonder Woman post-pres, I was buying that book for the Deathstroke guest appearance because I was big into those type of characters. It was not tasty for me as a Deathstroke appearance. Wonder Woman herself didn't do much for me. And I don't even think I bought it new. I think I pulled it out of the back issue bin. What finally got me to read Wonder Woman on a regular basis was editor Ruben Diaz, or maybe he was an assistant editor. I'm not sure. But anyway, he used to write those little editorial materials in DC Comics where they were trying to hype books of the time. This was the early 90s. They were very into hype. And so Ruben Diaz basically was saying in one of these columns that they're about to do something in Wonder Woman to rival the death of Superman and the breaking of Batman and Nightfall. So I wanted to get in there on the ground floor. The first issue of Wonder Woman I'd bought in a number of years by that point besides the special, was number 79. It was the second part of a two-part story that guest-starred the Wally West Flash. It featured a super-speeding assassin called Mayfly, who was a hemophiliac. She got caught up in the machinations of an evil agent of a god or an earthly human incarnation of the god Ares called Ares Buchanan. So you got to figure she probably met a bad end. 
but I like the way that they told her story and the story of Wonder Woman, some of the circumstances that surrounded their encounter. Even though I had already decided to commit to Wonder Woman based on this hype that Ruben Diaz had generated, I actually bought and enjoyed the story for a change because like everybody else, I had read some of the Death and Return of Superman comics. Those were okay. I really did not care for any of the stuff involving Doomsday. I skipped Funeral for a Friend entirely, but I liked some of the books featuring the Reign of the Supermen. And then with Batman, I followed Nightfall right up to the end of the first main core arc of Nightfall and then they did I think Nightfall the Quest or Night Quest or some crap like that was not enjoying those Batman books but in the case of Wonder Woman it was one well-written book and I enjoyed it thoroughly enough that I started picking up back issues immediately I appreciated that Wonder Woman was a humanist superheroine she had a great arc a few months prior to my coming on involving what they called the Noble Pirates spelled with a Y where Wonder Woman goes off in outer space and she basically goes through a women in prison movie that leads to her becoming part of a band of all-female space pirates a really cool story something you couldn't do with any other character and as i bought the book month after month i thoroughly enjoyed where they were going with this character and how unique and how beautifully constructed the heroine was i loved it so much in fact that i bought the book every month from 1993 until the year 2007 i didn't just buy the core title i bought all the variant covers which is something i've never been fond of as a comic book reader i am a reader i'm not a collector but in the case of wonder woman i would collect that book i actually was buying for a long time there are two copies one one every month not because i was speculating that i was going to make money off of these books when they got hot i did it because so many comic shops were closing around 1993 that i would actually have subscriptions at two different shops to make sure that i didn't miss wonder woman because wonder woman was such a scarce book in terms of the ability to find it on a newsstand somewhere without having pre-ordered it that i didn't want to take a chance of ever missing my wonder woman comics so two copies every month i bought guest appearances i bought back issues i bought pretty much any comic book that was tangentially related to Wonder Woman for the better part of 15 years. And I also was very big in memorabilia. When I had my shops, my partner would buy stuff when she would go off to Six Flags and other places. My customers would buy me stuff from the Warner Brothers store. I had tons of Wonder Woman stuff given to me over those years and stuff that I managed to buy myself. But working in comic shops meant that you didn't have a lot of money for stuff like that. And I enjoyed the artists that did the book in that time period, Lee Motor, Paris Cullens. Things started to take a turn though when they introduced the Artemis character. It's a common trope in Wonder Woman comics to have a new tournament where Wonder Woman's position as the Wonder Woman is challenged by another Amazon. This new bad girl Amazon Artemis was brought in, did manage to supplant Diana. She was clearly meant to be a commentary on the then popular bad girl trend in comics. And they had a new artist, Mike Deodato Jr., that played to that visual style. But the problem was Deodato was so good at the bad girl work that the book did get hot, but it got hot based on his racier take on the female form and his angular, extreme imagey panel breakdowns and that sort of thing. So the book lost its way and I don't think that Deodato's visualizations of the scripts were in great service to William Messner Loeb's work. Both creators left the book with issue number 100. My understanding is Deodato was leaving because he had set up a cottage industry of lookalike artists that were doing a lot of work for Marvel at the time and with Mike Deodato leaving, they decided to just dump the writer of the book for the previous four years. John Byrne ended up taking over the creative chores on the title entirely. Like most people, I was a big fan of John Byrne in the early 80s. I had actually burned out on him before he even finished his Superman run, and it seemed like each successive project from that point on, I liked his work less and less. So by the time he was announced as the replacement on Wonder Woman, I was very put off by that. It wasn't what I wanted. 
for the three years or so that he wrote the book. He introduced all these retro elements, a lot of Robert Kaniger stuff, came back during that time period. Burns' artwork was not what it had been. In the earliest issues, he affected a bit of a Todd McFarlane gloss over his normal style, but he lost interest in that fairly quickly. So I would say I suffered through that period, and then he was replaced by a writer named Eric Luke, who'd been doing a book called Ghost of the Time for Dark Horse. That was another writer that I did not feel had a very good handle on the character, did not have very interesting things to say with her. So I struggled through the couple of years he wrote the book. During this time period, Morrison and Porter had started the big JLA book that was a huge success, brought a lot of new readers to DC, but I don't think that Wonder Woman benefited very much from that. The actual Diana Prince Wonder Woman was taken out of that book about four or five issues into the run and replaced by her mother for a long period of time. But even when Diana was in the book, I never felt like Grant Morrison had any were near as good a handle on her as he did on the other JLA characters. Mark Wade and Joe Kelly made a greater effort to do things with Wonder Woman in the JLA, and they were more successful than Grant Morrison, but you didn't really get any classic Wonder Woman material from those stories. The book that was helping to show non-Wonder Woman readers who that character was wasn't promoting her terribly well. Meanwhile, by this point, Phil Jimenez had taken over the solo Wonder Woman book. Jimenez is a very George Perez-influenced artist, but he had his own take on that particular style. The liked quite a bit. I'd been a fan of his work in the Titans line of books when he was doing those. But one of the books that I enjoyed the least as a DC fan in the 90s was his writing with, I think the fellow's name was Jeff Jensen on Team Titans. I loathed that book by the time it came to an end. I, I should have just dropped it if I had sense and wasn't so involved with keeping up with continuity and keeping up with collections, I would have. Phil Jimenez did a lot of cool things that helped to reintroduce elements of Wonder Woman's lore back into the post Perez continuity, but he did things that I appreciated in ways I didn't appreciate them, and I did not enjoy reading his writing to such a degree that after having suffered for years through creators on Wonder Woman on a monthly basis that I didn't care for, I finally stopped bothering to even read the comic I was buying. He was succeeded by Greg Rucka, who I also wasn't a big fan of, but in the modern era, he's one of the more popular Wonder Woman writers, and I did at least read his run, which I can't say for the one prior to it. I found his work derivative. I thought he was pandering. I didn't like a lot of the directions he went in, but he was okay. Going into Infinite Crisis, DC Comics decided to finally cancel the Wonder Woman series that had been running for 200 and some odd issues by that point. And I'm sure the intention was to bring in a bunch of new readers with a number one. But what I'd found is that having really only enjoyed one run of the book in the entire time I'd been buying Wonder Woman comics, that was an excellent opportunity for me to finally say, see ya, I'm done with Wonder Woman. When they relaunched Wonder Woman, the new number one, I bought the book for the first I think it was five issues or so that were written by Alan Heinberg and drawn by Terry Dodson. It wasn't long before I realized that it was not for me. And once Heinberg's story resolved in an annual because he was pushing the schedule of the book back so late that it came out months after the actual numerical series had left his story behind under new short-term prose writer Jody Picoult in her run that was lambasted. Heinberg had basically just decided that he was going to copy what Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee did on Hush. It's a very basic story that's main intention was to show off as many Wonder Woman supporting characters and villains as possible as drawn by a flashy artist. I enjoyed that aspect of it, but not a lot else. It seemed like every time I would try other creators during that new renumbered series, it never worked out. One of my favorite writers of recent years is Gail Simone. I've enjoyed her Birds of Prey series in particular, and she's been great on other books as well. As a woman, she can actually write female characters exceptionally well, but she has predilections toward darker 
material that I didn't think worked for Wonder Woman and she brought those tendencies into that book. So as much as I wanted to see a popular, capable female writer on the Wonder Woman title, I just think that Gail Simone was a misfit and the times I tried to read the book when she wrote it, I was very unhappy. Then of course, Simone left, J. Michael Straczynski was brought in with Phil Hester doing most of the heavy lifting. I'd heard good things about Phil Hester's work on Straczynski's outline, which was of course a major revision of the Wonder Woman character that did not seem very palatable to me, but I actually intended to try it out under Hester, except, you know, within a year, DC had decided to blow that off and relaunch her yet again as part of the New 52, this time by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. I have a deep dislike of Brian Azzarello. I think that he loathes the superhero medium and does not believe in the concept of heroes. Wonder Woman is one of the worst possible characters for a writer like that to take on. I enjoy Cliff Chang, though. I really wanted to buy that book. I wanted to enjoy it. I thought that there was a kernel of interesting material in their approach to the character, but in reading the book, that was not my Wonder Woman. The female lead is running around the sword, chopping up things, and it's dark, and it's grim, and there's all sorts of evil, messed up stuff happening that taints Wonder Woman's mythology in a really horrifying, gut-churning way. That was part of a greater push by DC to turn Wonder Woman into a character that was easier to write by boiling her down to the essence of a character that was not actually Diana Prince or Wonder Woman. And so as of right now, as much as I love Wonder Woman, the concept and the character that I read and collected for all these years, I went back and bought collections of her older stories. I've enjoyed the original works by her creators, William Moulton Marston and H.G. Peter. I'm a fan of Denny O'Neill and Mike Sikowski's Diana Prince stories of the late 60s and early 70s. I like a lot of the Bronze Age material, but at the same time, DC has this long history of treating the character poorly. For decades, writer-editor Robert Cannon handled the character and most of the stories he wrote for her I pushed my way through there's lots of bad Wonder Woman comic books out there there's lots of writers that don't know how to handle the character it's frustrating because as much as I love Wonder Woman and the good elements of the character and the stuff that I believe makes her a great role model and a wonderful heroine it's very hard to find a golden Wonder Woman comic that you can hand to a new reader and go this is the Wonder Woman book this is Wonder Woman's Dark Knight Returns this is Wonder Woman's Man of Steel because that book doesn't exist the character is much more subtle than that and she does not have one of those defining works to explain to readers who she is. Probably the closest thing is Kingdom Come, which is a book that I find extremely overrated and spectacularly damaging to the concept of Wonder Woman, amazingly misunderstood by the reading public and by the creators that were influenced by it to do exactly what the book was warning them not to do with the DC Universe. So in this podcast, the title itself name drops Diana Prince, which is kind of tricky because there's also a porn star named Diana Prince, and we're not trying to promote that around here, folks. Do that on your own time. But for me, wanting to do a Wonder Woman podcast, a lot of that is motivated by wanting to find that core of Wonder Woman and the Wonder Woman that I believe in, the Wonder Woman that I love, and trying to share that with people who may not necessarily be as familiar with that character. To guide toward the material that has been forgotten, to show where the holy texts of George Perez who created a sort of cult of Wonder Woman fandom around his efforts which flew in the face of a lot of core principles of the character that had been established in previous decades but there are so many people who think that that's the Wonder Woman the only Wonder Woman but there isn't one Diana Prince there isn't one Wonder Woman Wonder Woman is a collection of vastly different interpretations you can say the same thing about Superman and Batman because these are characters that span decades but there's a core to those characters that most people understand and so when you have somebody like a Zack Snyder come in and does a movie like Man of Steel that rubs people the wrong way, sometimes in a way they can't even articulate because 
because there's something in their heart and their soul that they understand about the Superman character that they know isn't getting handled correctly in this movie. There are a lot of completely true, completely right interpretations of Wonder Woman that completely contradict one another. She is a very dichotomous character and it's just not as simple as a Batman or Superman to explain who she is and what her appeal is and what her goals are. But I hope to approach that in this podcast. And I really want to focus on Diana Prince as a woman, not just as an icon of female heroines. That's been, I think, one of the major problems with the character is instead of writing a character and figuring out who this character is, people try to write Wonder Woman, this concept of female empowerment and feminism. Or in the case of the Finches, they do everything they can to run screaming away from any kind of sociopolitical subtext and say, no, this is just an action story that just happens to feature a woman. I think that Wonder Woman can just be in straightforward superhero action stories. I don't think you have to do anything ideological or philosophical with Wonder Woman. And I think that most characters that you feel the weight of importance in writing them tend to fall flat on their face on a pop culture, junk culture medium like comic books. She can just be that adventure heroine, but I think when you try to deny that she's also a female icon, you're probably not understanding the full depth and scope of the character. But at the same time, while this Wonder Woman is an iconic figure, she also needs to be a relatable, interesting character that people can latch on to, that people find entertaining. She needs to be somebody that readers want to spend time with, which in my experience as a retailer and as a reader, I've not seen happen very often. And that's why the character has been able to be so contorted and abused in stories that feature her. So my hope is that with this podcast, we can look not just at Wonder Woman, but at Diana Prince and who that character has been, who that character can be, and try to figure out where the character is within the icon that is Wonder Woman. Plus, I just tend to prefer the weirder, off-the-beaten-path takes a Wonder Woman. Since the 1980s, Wonder Woman has basically been just the mythological heroine, the Thor of the DC Universe. And I think she's a lot more interesting if she becomes a frog, or if she's replaced by a horse-faced alien, or she's battling Loki in the Wild West. Wonder Woman isn't just a mythological character. She is a superhero she's a space heroine she's a time traveler she has team-ups with an infant toddler and young adolescent version of herself she should be weird wild wacky basically whatever people have decided to assign her as being she should be allowed to be more than that one thing she should be a whole bunch of different great crazy fun things to entertain us and to educate us and to enthrall us with her adventures or else you end up with a sword slinging goddess of war that flies in the face of her creator intentions I didn't want the episode to be exclusively me rambling on so I wanted to take a book that I knew I didn't have enough to talk about for episode link and go ahead and discuss it here the Wonder Woman 77 special this is a $7.99 collection of the six I believe digital shorts that DC produced in the spirit of the Batman 66 adaptation where they basically pretend like they're continuing a television series and incorporating elements from later comic book continuity into the style of the original somewhat campy TV shows. Not somewhat uproariously campy TV shows. Now, I thought I remembered Wonder Woman 77 being announced as an ongoing series, so I think a lot of people were bummed out when it only ran six editions, all of which can be collected in this one square-bound special. But having read the book, I'm glad that they went that away. I found it to be a really nice, amusing diversion, but I, I think that if they were charging me three, four bucks a month for this, I'd get to seriously questioning where my money was being spent. The entire book is 
written by Mark Andreco. The first chapter's art is by Drew Johnson, who had a run on Wonder Woman. I believe he worked with Greg Rucka at the beginning of his run on the book. And it's cute. There's good likenesses to the actors, Linda Carter, Lyle Wagoner. The villainous Silver Swan, who was created a few years after the show ended, makes her debut in the style of the show, and it's quite amusing. Jim and the Holograms fans should take note of it. The second chapter of the Silver Swan story is drawn by Matt Haley, an artist that I really, really enjoy. He's the kind of guy, one of the few artists I can name, that I have bought books for solely because I wanted to see this person draw. Haley does a nice job with it, and he works well with Drew Johnson's style, considering he's continuing the story. But it's not really up to the standards that I expect from Matt Haley. Still good, it's just not exceptional the way that he often has been. Haley's work continues into the third chapter, but he shares credit with the artist Richard Ortiz. Much more striking change in style there, but all the artists are good, and they do seem to capture the spirit of the show quite well. Next up is the story, Who is Wonder Woman? The first chapter drawn by Jason Badauer. I've looked at reviews and tend to agree with everybody else who thinks that this guy steals the book. Excellent photorealistic likenesses. And not to spoil anything, but this story offers the otherwise impossible crossover between the Linda Carter Wonder Woman and the Kathy Lee Crosby, one that preceded her by a year, and gets to play with her diverging continuities. Matt Haley returns for the second chapter of this story, and Haley is once again joined by Richard Ortiz for the final chapter, which also closes out the book as a whole, and perhaps recognizing that this was the end of the run of Wonder Woman 77, TV show variations on a whole slew of Wonder Woman villains turn up here, and it's neat to see them rendered in that style as though, you know, the, the, the television show didn't have a lot of costumed villains, I don't recall any in fact, so it's nifty to see how that could have played out if the Wonder Woman show had been a little bit more like the Batman show. There's also a good deal of additional back matter, including an article by Andy Mangles, who's been covering comic book related live action adaptations for decades now and it's an enjoyable little piece and then there's also a lot of production art showing variant covers and designs and such again I think at $7.99 it's a value for a Wonder Woman fan the stories are very insubstantial but the original television show wasn't exactly weighty to begin with it is funny to me though that the, they're only going to give us this one book with the $8 cover price and having sold a respectable 24,621 copies in the direct market according to Comicron making it the 99th top seller of in comics for the month with that cover price it made significantly more money than the actual Wonder Woman comic does so I think maybe they should consider doing maybe a Wonder Woman 77 annual instead of just the one special especially if they can keep up this level of quality again I wouldn't want to read this on a weekly or monthly basis but as a once a year treat I can go down with that Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at emailofdiabolu at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at commanderblanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.